This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. And today I'm really thrilled. It's a personal privilege, honestly, to be speaking with Brad Stone, who is the author of four books, including his most recent published this month, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. And this book, Amazon Unbound, traces the transformation of Amazon into one of the largest and most feared companies of the world and the accompanying emergence of its founder, Jeff Bezos, as the richest man alive. And before we jump into the interview, I just want to read a section that I highlighted, which I think really describes the book very well. It's the story of a hard-hitting CEO who created such a fertile corporate culture that even at massive size, it repeatedly shucked its own bureaucracy to invent exhilarating new products. It's also the story of how a leading technology company became so omnipotent over the course of a single decade that many started to worry that it might definitively tilt to the proverbial playing field against smaller companies. And it shows how one of the world's most famous business people appeared to lose his way and then tried to find it again right in the midst of a terrifying global pandemic that further augmented his power and profit. It's a tale that describes a period in business history when the old laws no longer seemed to apply to the world's most dominant companies, and it explored what happened when one man and his vast empire were about to become totally unbound. So Brad, welcome to the e-commerce Brain Trust podcast. Thank you, Kiri. <laughs> so I was reading a book last night and really just loved it almost as much as the Everything Store, which was really pivotal in my understanding of how the inner workings of Amazon. Your book really shatters the illusions of a man and a company that has it all together. For anyone who operates in the Amazon ecosystem, whether that's suppliers, solution providers, and even savvy consumers, it's a fascinating look at the very starting point of programs that are part of our daily lives today, like Alexa, Amazon Fresh, Go stores, Amazon advertising, etc. And what's unique about Amazon Unbound, just like your earlier book about Amazon, was your access to current and former Amazon staff, which is very rare and an asset that you've clearly built up over many, many years as a reporter. So just want to congratulate you on a really great book. Thank you. Thank you, Kiri. Yeah, I feel like that was not a bloodless task to get them to, to, particularly since they didn't love the everything store. And so to kind of clamor back and get them to open up a little bit again for Amazon Unbound, yeah, was a, a big challenge. And maybe they, you know, feel like they have more to gain now by cooperating with these in-depth looks at the business than by, you know, putting up the walls and the gates and not allowing journalists, you know, to talk to them. Mm. Yeah, from my limited interactions with Amazon PR, there seems to be a little a little bit of a shift recently in sharing a bit more of the, the story, which is good. I want to start out talking about Fulfillment by Amazon FBA, which actually started out under a different name in 2002, you mentioned, 
And finally, after a lot of iteration, started finally gaining traction in 2014. So it was a good 10, 12 years before it started building up to what we know of Amazon FBA today. What were some of the challenges in rolling out FBA that we really don't appreciate today? Right. This is a program that starts, I think, in 2002. It has the truly awful name Self-Service Order Fulfillment. And for a couple of years, it's kind of, you know, a nothing inside Amazon. You know, they're looking for a solution, you know, after the dot-com bust to help basically, you know, turn these expensive fulfillment centers, you know, make them more useful, particularly you know, during the time of the year where, where sales are, are slower, self-service order fulfillment, yeah, is that idea to allow kind of third-party sellers to use Amazon's infrastructure and its fulfillment space as their own. And it, yeah, it's only after a couple of years that they rebrand it, they start rolling it out more widely. And, you know, it's funny because we now think of Jeff Bezos as, as somewhat of a remove from the older parts of the business, but he really micromanaged FBA early on. And one of the things he did was, you know, he just constantly argued for a simple, easy to understand rate card, you know, to lose money on it for years. And that's obviously a pattern that recurs. You know, he wanted sellers to, you know, view Amazon as a utility. And he viewed, he almost alone saw the promise in FBA and viewed it as, you know, one of the businesses that could kind of nurture the other parts of Amazon. Mm. And there were all sorts of challenges and internal struggles because like the operations folks, you know, they didn't want this stuff mucking up the warehouse. They had enough trouble, you know, hiring people for the holidays and getting all the orders out on time. And I, t- I remember talking to, you know, the former, the well, a couple of formers ago, head of operations, and he was like, it was awful. Like, you know, it was a simple rate card. So not a lot of variety in what they charged FBA sellers. But nevertheless, you know, things would flood in like surfboards, you know, kayaks, all sorts of bulky, hard to store products, and they had to deal with it. And so create a lot of internal challenges, some skepticism from sellers, and some hand-wringing from Wall Street, who didn't really understand why Amazon was doing this. And of course, the media, you know, and I remember writing one of the first stories about FBA when I was a New York Times reporter, and it was just so hard to get your head around. Like, what? wait, Amazon is going to store and ship products for, for eBay sellers? I mean, that was kind of what it boiled down to, or seemed to back then. So you know, one of those areas in which Bezos had a lot of farsight, you know, and was willing to kind of undergo a lot of pain to get the business to scale and to a point where it worked. You talk about the early days of wish.com and how that inspired Amazon to look at recruiting sellers directly in China. Tell us about that project and how the unintended consequences of that program affect the marketplace today, both for consumers and for suppliers. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the questions that I had as I went into this book, which is a look at the last 10 years of Amazon is how did growth in the in the core business actually accelerate, right? How did a company already with 100 billion in sales start to grow even faster as it matures? And businesses don't just don't do that, right? They tend to slow down as they get bigger. It's the law of large numbers. And one of the explanations was, you know, the increase of sales velocity in the marketplace and the expansion of a third-party goods to be the bulk of items and sales revenues that, you know, that in Amazon's retail business. And, you know, and so I was looking at, well, how did that happen, right? How did they accelerate growth in the marketplace? And one thing, you know, that was, was immediately evident was they opened it up. They basically 
opened up the marketplace to third-party sellers around the world, and they lowered the friction and the barriers to signing up to become a seller. And you know, when you look at at the seller communities that really embraced that, it was you know it was in, in large part China and Asian sellers, sellers close to manufacturers or manufacturers themselves. And as I was interviewing you know marketplace executives, some authorized by Amazon, others others folks who had left. It really was apparent that what happened was in 2014, 2015, Amazon saw the rise of Wish.com, which was you know, conducting a kind of geographic arbitrage in e-commerce, allowing Chinese sellers and manufacturers to sell to the West and to often do it with very slow shipping but low prices. And then the fear around AliExpress, you know, and, and I think an unrealized fear, but a sense back then that Alibaba was going to invade the West in a significant way with really low-priced, broad selection. And Bezos sort of, you know, affixed Sebastian Gunningham, one of his senior executives at the time, with a laser-eyed stare and said, you're on this, right? And that was sort of the beginning of this effort. And it's funny because some testimony has emerged in, in the various antitrust cases where you you see Amazon executives wrangling with the impact of this. They will say, we're accelerating our outreach to sellers in China. But by the way, this is going to be really disruptive to Western sellers. We need to downplay it. And they really ran headlong into it. And it did increase selection and lower prices and lead to increased sales growth. But it brought a lot of chaos with it. Counterfeits exploding hoverboards, sneakers that are cheap but self-destruct upon the third use. And, you know, and, and that was a conscious choice made by Amazon and made by Bezos himself, who believed that this is what customers would want. Yeah, to quote a question in the book, did Amazon want a calm, orderly store with only well-known and trustworthy brands, or did it favor a more chaotic marketplace with a more extensive variety of products and prices? And it's pretty clear that they chose the latter and it seemed like it was, yeah, like you said, it was contentious. But something you pointed out, which I found really interesting, was a data-led decision, ultimately. Amazon's German website allowed third-party merchants to list and sell a variety of branded and generic shoes, while Amazon UK featured a curated shoe store with only more expensive brand name footwear. And the German site performed markedly better. That's the kind of data. <laughs> yeah. Right. But ultimately, Bezos wanted it all. Like they would ask him in meetings, should we move in the direction of the curated store, you know, with name brand clothing, or should we allow anyone to sell anything, even knockoff brands? And he wouldn't answer. He would say, I believe people will be wearing clothes for a very long time. I haven't seen <laughs> that many naked people today, you know, and then laugh uproariously. And he kind of wanted to stay out of it, which of course was an implicit vote for the anything goes selection. And, you know, and, and this is, it was, it, yes, it was what customers seemed to want, but it was also, you know, where the industry was going, this kind of globalized marketplace, cross-border commerce. But ultimately, I do think Amazon had a responsibility as it was inducting tens of thousands of new sellers onto the marketplace every single day to vet some of these sellers, you know, to ensure that, you know, these were real brands that they own the intellectual property that they were selling, that the product quality was good, that the products were safe. And these are things, and, and this is the, the criticism that is lodged now against most tech companies, is that they kind of you know go and fix the unintended consequences only after they happen. And that's what we've seen over the past few years with Project Zero and all these anti-counterfeit programs that Amazon has erected. And you know it's all 
to address the kind of criticism and chaos that resulted when they basically threw open the gates to international sellers. But yeah, I mean, I think I think there were some repercussions and probably also some damage to Amazon's image. Yeah, definitely. A couple of things on that. One is, I'm not sure if you saw, but Marketplace Pulse a few days ago reported that Amazon suspended over a dozen Chinese sellers for participating in fake review schemes. And these were like some of the biggest volume sellers on Amazon and and some of the criticism from sellers and vendors is, oh, that these Chinese brands, we can see that they are manipulating the system. It's very clear when you look at the, the reviews, but Amazon's just clearly making too much money from selling these products that they don't do anything about it. And it was big news because Amazon finally did something about it. And, you know, in fairness, they've probably been trying to work on ramping up their enforcement efforts, suing bad actors, suspending, you know, fraudulent sellers for for maybe a couple of years. I mean, one thing that happened, you know, back when the search engine was largely a kind of algorithmic ordered taxonomy of, of sellers, you know, the, the number of reviews, the quality of reviews was a, a big factor in the search results. And so, you know, I don't know why they didn't foresee this, but sellers, right, engaged in all sorts of tomfoolery to trick the search engine and to appear on that on that prized first page of search results. Well, you know, some of that still happens, but one of the interesting things that's happened is Amazon has basically blown up its search engine and it's now pay to play. And I think the number of reviews, it's probably still significant or the or the overall rating, but maybe less so, you know, and maybe that will have more of an impact well beyond the suspending a couple of sellers for review fraud. Just the fact that they appear to have, I think, I mean, at least to me, deprioritize the impact of positive customer feedback, because that is, you know, inherently, you know, a pretty, a pretty, you know, manipulated, manipulable, is that yes. even a word? Kiri? I don't <laughs> manipulable. Even know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because you can hire an army of people to give you positive reviews. There's not right. much Amazon can do about that. In fact, you could probably use a mechanical Turk, Amazon's own service to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So an- another thing you shared about that sort of potentially anti-competitive is about Amazon's private label brands that I'm, I'm not sure has been reported in the past. And even within the book, there was, you know, some of your sources confirmed it was true and then Amazon themselves denied it and they publicly denied it. And that was around this practice of search seeding with their private label brands. So actually giving a leg up to their private label brands. So is it true you were sort of, you were told that this was happening, seems like by several sources, but then it's been publicly denied by Amazon. What's your point of view of this practice? Let me define it first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea is, well, when you introduce any new product on Amazon, you know, you should technically start at the very bottom of, of the search results, particularly in the old days, you know, when it was reviews and customer feedback and sales volume, you're starting at the bottom. You know, today you can buy an ad and and propel yourself forward. Well, search seeding was actually, it was a, a tool that Amazon had at its disposal. For example, if a product, you know, there was some, you know, error in the system or the product, you know, disappeared from search results, they could reintroduce it by basically tethering it to another product, maybe a competitor's product, and it would appear, you know, relatively high in search results. And so basically, you know, when Amazon starts to really ramp up the creation of private label products, particularly in the consumables category, 
And the product managers for these these products, Amazon Essentials, Amazon Basics, you know, the, the, the list is long, the names are always peculiar. You know, they had big goals, S-team goals in many cases to, you know, reach a certain amount of sales. And what they would do is they would use the search seeding technique to basically jump the line, so to speak, and get their product on the first page of, of search results. And then things could take off from there. Now, Amazon didn't really quite deny it. If I recall, they said, you know, no, of course we don't do that, but we do, you know, employ some very reasonable practices to bring more visibility to our new products and only for a short period of time, which is exactly what I was, you know, which I was writing that they had done and which former employees told me they had done. So that's one of the ways in which, you know, Amazon does seem to be privileging some of their private label products. The other one, obviously, is peering at market data from third-party sellers to figure out what is selling and then bringing out an Amazon private label a product in that skew. And that's been another hot-button issue. Sellers told me, or, or Amazon executives told me, that that did happen for a period of time. The cookie jar was, in fact, open. Amazon sort of denied that in antitrust hearings and said they would investigate it. But I think it seems pretty clear now, reflecting on it, that it did happen. Yeah, definitely. I have a theory. I'm curious if you agree with this or not, which is whatever revenue Amazon's getting from private label brands is surely not equal to the revenue they could be getting from third-party advertisers. And there was a period of time, I think it was two or three years ago, where Amazon, Amazon's private label brands were taking sponsored product placements so they were advertising they were using advertising slots for their own private label brands and I was thinking this you know the margins on those private label brands are presumably quite slim because they're value oriented and they're taking up these ad spots which would otherwise be occupied by large CPG brands you know wanting to get in front of consumers and I just thought it seemed to be pretty short-sighted to me that there were stealing from Peter to pay Paul kind of with between private label brands and their advertising division. Do you agree with that? Or do you think there's more to the story there? It's definitely a dual-sided calculation. I mean, Amazon is obviously, I think you're right, losing money on the advertising. It's weakening the relationship with brands. It's drawing some scrutiny, obviously, from antitrust authorities. But I mean, they're following a well-worn retail playbook, I think, right? I mean, when you, you know, when you go into drugstores or supermarkets, Costco here in the States is a big private label creator. The shelves are filled with private labels and retailers do that because it offers a lower price and probably kind of solidifies their relationship with a certain kind of customer that's looking for a value. And so, yeah, I think you're right that maybe in the final analysis, it, it might not totally be worth it. But, you know, that's interesting because it, it means that if, you know, the regulatory hammer comes down on Amazon for the practices we're talking about, they could just walk away from it and actually might be better off from a revenue standpoint in the end. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the private label question is a emotional hot button for brands, particularly the ones that have had one of their best-selling products be essentially copied by Amazon. That's happened many times. When I speak with Amazon about it, it's sort of, it does not compute. For them, it's just such a tiny part of their business. That's the argument that they go back to is, well, yeah, we've got this private label business. Like you said, it's very common in retail. We're not doing anything different to, especially 
like an Aldi or, you know, there's chains in the the UK and Europe that you talk about where, you know, 40 plus percent of their business is private labels. So, yeah, arguably Amazon's not doing anything different there. It feels different because of the data that they're using there and how blatant the examples are of a backpack or a car organizer that you talk about in the book. Why does it feel so different with Amazon? Why do people get so much more emotional about Amazon private label? Well, I mean, people get emotional about Amazon across the board, right? It is now occupying a spot in the public imagination that maybe only Walmart, I guess before that Sears and maybe way before that, the great A&P grocery. But Amazon is the boogeyman and people tend to get emotional about it and about you know, the giant retailers in our midst that are kind of the natural enemy of the of the very sympathetic small mom and pop store. But I mean, with, what's particular to Amazon, I think, is its vast trove of data. And the fact, I mean, Amazon is so hard to understand, but we can all intuitively understand this, right? It's a platform. It allows small sellers to sell on the platform. And then the idea that they're peeking at what sells, what's doing well and then offering the same thing in the retail part of their business, that just smells funny. And for a company as big and complex and kind of ominous as Amazon, I think that that's something that you know regulators and lawmakers and maybe even some customers can grasp onto and say, you know, that probably shouldn't be happening. Yeah, that's a great point. It's one thing if Aldi is making their own brand of corn chips or Trader Joe's corn chips and competing with Doritos. But it's another thing if Amazon has ripped off a proprietary design of a backpack from a tiny company. Yeah, that's a different emotional. Well, I mean, I mean, to be honest, it's like that data is out there, right? And it's probably if Amazon, you know, was really restricted from looking at their seller data, you know, it's not like they can't get, I mean, you can look at the Amazon website as an outsider and see what's selling, right? And you can go to a, a data broker like Nielsen, you know, here in the US and see what's trending. So, you know, to be honest, you know, I'm not sure how much of an advantage it actually confers that, you know, they have over the years, you know, kept the guardrails down and, and allowed managers to go and, and look at data they shouldn't be looking at. But that, again, that's part of the emotional response. And I think people can grasp onto it. With antitrust, there's, there's a lot of directions this could potentially go. One is that, you know, the attention on Amazon's deflected by the other nefarious tech giants and it's overshadowed in that way. You fast forward another seven years and you're writing your third Amazon book, Brad. <laughs> what God happened? help me, Carrie. If, <laughs> just if you hear me talking about a third Amazon book, I want you to knock me over the head. <laughs> what will you have to say about Amazon antitrust in the future? What's going to happen in the next few years? I don't know, but I do feel like while it is a significant threat, I have a hard time seeing it as being anything close to an existential threat. You know, for a number of reasons. One, it as you say, it's a it's a crowded field now of targets for regulators. You know, two, Amazon, unlike say a Google or a Facebook or a Microsoft in the '90s, it doesn't have the kind of clear market share advantage. You know that you normally see in terms of monopolies. Amazon competes in some really big markets. That's you know deliberately so, and so it's hard to you know use existing antitrust law to really you know penalize the company. It has the advantages of seeing the Microsoft story antitrust saga play out in its hometown. 
and they go to great lengths to ensure that there's nothing incriminating in their private correspondence that might be subpoenaed or when their employees go or their executives go and testify, they're on their best behavior. They put forth very little of the arrogance that we saw with Bill Gates or his colleagues back in the 90s. And so, you know, while there might be stuff around private label, you know, in the marketplace, I just don't see the death blow. And let's be frank, if one day Amazon was forced to split or voluntarily split up along the AWS and retail lines, you know, you'd have a a bunch of little baby Amazons running around gobbling up market share and valued at a trillion dollars a piece. So it's, it's not like that solves the problem either. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that antitrust story will be the big one over the next 10 years or so. But from my vantage point today, I don't see it as being, you know, consequential in the way that, you know, we look back at like the Bell company or the the big oil companies and trusts in the 1800s. Yeah. You talk about the challenges with rolling out Amazon Fresh. And I'd, I'd argue that Amazon fully has not fully cracked the code on that. How is their approach to grocery different to Instacart and the other major online grocery players? Oh, yeah, really interesting. And I tell the whole grocery story in, in Amazon Unbound, starting with Amazon Fresh and and then Prime Now after Google gets into it and Instacart gets into it. And at that stage, well, I mean, Instacart was sourcing from existing grocers and Amazon couldn't do that. None of the grocers, a couple, but none of the big ones wanted to work with it. And so basically it's sourcing from its own fulfillment centers and then it acquires Whole Foods Market and you know starts to source from a combination of those grocery stores plus its own fulfillment centers. And then the pandemic hits and it's basically a shot of steroids into that business. And I think it probably does start to work. I'm not confident that it's profitable, but it's certainly a fast growing part of its business. And then the new act, the latest act, is that they're now opening Amazon Fresh grocery stores, physical stores with either the Go Store technology which is, you know, the cameras in the ceilings or the dash carts where you put a product in the, in the shopping cart and it automatically tallies. And so what we're seeing is, you know, this, this hybrid, you know, omni-channel grocery store that can be basically a fulfillment center for local grocery deliveries and a in-store experience. Also a, a click, you know, click on buy online, pick up in your car. And then, you know, all augmented by artificial intelligence and computer recognition, computer vision technology to to allow shoppers to bypass the, the checkout line. And it's interesting, you know, I don't know if it'll work, but, you know, here we have a very Bezos-like, let's use technology to differentiate and to do something totally new. And, you know, when you look at the big retailers of the, of the world, you know, Kroger, Walmart, you know, et cetera. They're they're basically grocers, you know, and and Amazon is now coming into that market and targeting them with a unique solution. So that will be one of the more fascinating storylines, I think, to play out over the next couple of years. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And to your point about technology, you share in almost every chapter about how Bezos continually push for operating leverage in almost every area. And I wanted to double click into the hands off the wheel program for for vendors and sellers. And obviously that affects the relationship with vendors. Something I am very familiar with is how an increasingly algorithmic relationship between suppliers can, you know, is not ideal in many ways. Do you think that we're going to see more of that in the retail division at Amazon? 
Definitely. I think it's sort of a fundamental underlying principle of the older businesses at Amazon that you know they need to have operating le- leverage. Their sales need to scale at a faster pace than their costs. And the way you do that is by using technology and automation to slow the growth of, of headcount you know, to turn your variable costs into fixed costs. And, you know, we've seen that across the board, Amazon trying to do that. You know, the, the latest place they want to do that is in the fulfillment centers, using Kiva robots and, and other, you know, robots, you know, to slow the enormous growth of, you know, their real estate and logistics costs. And yeah, and that can be really frustrating for partners. I mean, this is the reason why when a seller complains, you know, there's no one there or you have to pay for white glove service. That's, I feel like, an integral part of Amazon's success and you know also maybe a little bit of the the part of the problem when we talk about you know the anarchy that's come on the marketplace and western sellers not being able to you know talk to someone when their accounts are suspended or when they feel like a seller has stolen reviews or copied their product and and they can't get anybody on the line this is why you know hands off the wheel operating leverage and it will continue no doubt yeah no doubt so my last question is, is about Dave Clark, and I was really pleased to see you give him a bit of airtime, a bit of his backstory, because now he's the head of consumer at Amazon and the head guy of you know, sellers, and, sellers and vendors. What kind of legacy do you think he will leave on the retail division at Amazon? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, he's already had a tremendous legacy you know, as the head of operations. So this is the guy who joined Amazon in the late 90s, went through the operations division, took it over in 2012, and you know has moved from 12 fulfillment centers in North America to hundreds, you know, and, and the same thing around the world. And then also, you know, for good measure, built a logistics division that now has airplanes, long haul trucks, and vans crawling a lot of neighborhoods in a lot of cities around the world. And, you know, as Jeff Wilkie, the head of the consumer division has retired, he has anointed Dave Clark, you know, one of his protégés to succeed him. Now, I mean, Kiri, like you've read it, so you know, it's not a completely flattering portrait of Dave Clark, right? He's tough. He's brutal in the way that Jeff Bezos is. And I have this saga in the book of how he kind of grew up at Amazon with his mentor, his first boss, a guy named Arthur Valdez. And finally, he kind of becomes Valdez's boss. And when Valdez is sort of disillusioned and and wants to go to Target, take another job there, Clark loses his mind and sues him, his best friend and the guy who was the best man at his wedding. So, you know, that tells you a lot of what you need to know about the, you know, the focus and drive and kind of almost mania of some of these Amazon executives. So to answer your question, if he brings, you know, the same sort of focus and relentless drive and maybe disregard for some personal relationships, you know, to this larger role as CEO of the retail business. Well, I mean, you know, there's nothing to suggest that he won't be effective, but look, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes you leave some people in your wake who aren't aren't that happy. So there should be interesting stories to tell, let's put it that way. But, you know, I also think he probably over the years, like Bezos himself, he might have mellowed at least a little bit. Although, I don't know, the guy's awfully punchy on Twitter, if you've noticed. Well, that's good for business for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. For all of us, it is. It is, yes. <laughs> well, Brad, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find the book? Well, Kiri, let's start with your friendly neighborhood local bookstore. And if not there, certainly, you know, your friendly national book chain. And then, you know, failing that, it's available on your e-commerce retailer of choice. And of course, and 
you know, I'll be frank, the preponderance of my sales are always on Mighty Amazon. Yeah. And it's available in the in the Kindle and on Audible audiobook and then of course hardcover on Amazon. Excellent. Thank you, Brad. Have a great day. Thank you, Kiri.